0: To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Hello and welcome to the Kingswell Avenue Podcast. I'm Paul Newhouse. This is a show about the Walt Disney Company and what I like to call its four pillars. The Disney Studios, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, and Pixar. On a weekly basis, I'll be looking at Disney in the news as well as taking a deep dive into a person, place, or thing which I believe had an impact on the company and its history. And I'll be doing all of this in, generally speaking, short episodes so you can get a dose of Disney and get on with your life. Which brings us to the news. Last week, I started watching the new 8-part Disney Plus documentary series, Marvel 616. If you haven't checked it out yet... 6.16 deals with the history and culture of Marvel Comics. Since the episodes are around an hour, I only covered parts 1 and 2. This week, let's do 3 and 4. Marvel employs creators from around the world. The third episode focuses on two artists from Spain. Their stories are similar to those of any artist in any country who hones their talent and overcomes indifference to find their place in the comics field. The fact these two are from Europe doesn't overshadow the commonality they share with creators everywhere, which is a good thing here. Apart from all the subtitles, I'd say this is a great installment for kids with artistic ambition to watch and learn from. In addition to the stories being inspirational, we get to see chunks of Spain, which looks beautiful. We also get to see the technologies the artists use to create their art and to simulate the New York where most of the Marvel Universe is based from many thousands of miles away. Episode 4 is more of a mockumentary than a documentary, and for that reason it doesn't really work. It follows comedian Paul Scheer as he uncovers some of Marvel's more obscure characters. That would have been fine, and in fact I enjoyed that portion of the program. Unfortunately, the idea here is that Scheer finds a forgotten superhero team, an eco-friendly group of cybernetically enhanced animals, and pitches a show built around them to Disney+. Plus. Of course, it's not a serious pitch, and the whole thing's played for laughs, Laughs that mostly don't come. If they'd stuck with the idea of sheer talking to writers and artists about ill-advised creations from the past, they would have really had something. The bogus, let's make a show thing doesn't work, mostly because A, you never buy that it's real, and B, it's not funny. I'd call Episode 4 a missed opportunity. On a more somber note, according to USA Today, Disney plans to lay off 32,000 of its workers in the first half of 2021. In a statement to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the company said, Due to the current climate, including COVID-19 impacts and changing environment in which we are operating, the company has generated efficiencies in its staffing, including limiting hiring to critical business roles, furloughs, and reductions in force. Of course, the biggest roadblock here is that Disneyland remains closed. Current thinking puts wide distribution of the coronavirus vaccines in spring 2021. Hopefully that will mitigate the layoffs. In any event, the park should reopen next year and it will need to staff up and staff up quickly. So things will get better. In related news, Gizmodo reported this week that Disney is planning on releasing more of the features it intended for theatrical distribution directly to Disney+. These include Cruella, Peter Pan and Wendy, and Pinocchio. Families with young children may feel differently, but I had no plans to see any of those films, so it doesn't really matter to me that they're going to television rather than theaters. When the company starts putting its Marvel and Star Wars films on the service without first dropping them in cinemas, you'll know there's no turning back. For the foreseeable future, I don't think that will happen. The next Star Wars movie is scheduled for 2023, and I don't believe that's a realistic target. There's been no announcement of what that movie will even be, and production hasn't begun. Meanwhile, there's one Marvel film in limbo, Black Widow, and they've already sat on it for six months. They're probably willing to go longer as no one knows what a Disney Plus release would do to the movie slated to come after it. Website Animation World Network has an interview with Paul Ruddish, the producer and supervising director of The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse, the show I mentioned last week. Of course, Ruddish also made 96 Mickey cartoons for the Disney Channel between 2013 and 2018. Those shorts use the same art style as the new show, but were only three and a half minutes long, whereas the Wonderful World installments run about seven. I wondered in our last podcast what the release schedule was, and the AWN article answers that question. Disney Plus will drop two new episodes every Friday and plans to have a total of 20 done by sometime in 2021. Overall, the article is a puff piece, but I did learn one interesting thing. The shorts aren't scripted, they're storyboarded. This is the old-school way of doing things and prevents what classic cartoon director Chuck Jones once called illustrated radio. The end product of such a process ends up being more visual and generally funnier. Anyway, like I said last week, the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse is amusing, bright, and charming. I watched the two they released this last Friday, and they were good too. Meanwhile, speaking of Disney+, Plus, we're quickly running out of Mandalorian episodes for another year. This week's fifth installment featured the long-awaited appearance of former Jedi Ahsoka Tano as played by Rosario Dawson. Dawson embodied the fan-favorite character quite well, and it was good to see the Force and lightsabers finally make their way into this little corner of the Star Wars galaxy. This episode was directed by Dave Filoni, which shouldn't surprise anyone who's familiar with Ahsoka's origins. Like Katie Sakhaloff's Bo-Katan from a couple of weeks ago, Ahsoka comes from animation. The Clone Wars and Rebels, to be exact. Filoni was the man at the helm of both of those shows, much as Jon Favreau is the producer of The Mandalorian. As such, he was a gimme when it came to directing this story. Like Carl Weathers' installment from last week, I thought this one had some pacing problems. The battle scenes at the end were great, but the expositional interludes in the middle were a bit too static. Nevertheless, we learned Baby Yoda's backstory as well as his name. Spoiler alert, it's Grogu. I'll give this season one thing, each episode drives the plot forward enough that you're left anticipating the next, and they're also dropping some nice old-school lore. This week Ahsoka name-dropped Grand Admiral Thrawn, one of the bad guys from Rebels. As with Bo-Katan's introduction, though, neither Tano's first appearance nor the Thrawn reference should be jarring to those who were unfamiliar. Neither were integral to the plot, and act merely as bonuses for those who track the animated storylines. Well, unfortunately, we're ending this week's news on a sad note. Actor David Prowse has died at the age of 85. James Earl Jones was, of course, the voice of the Sith Lord, but Prowse, a British actor and bodybuilder, was the man under the helmet. In addition to playing Vader, Prowse was Christopher Reeve's personal trainer for the original Superman. He will be missed. That's enough news for this week. Let's turn now to our deep dive. This time out, we're focusing on Pixar's convoluted early history. The plan at Pixar was always to produce computer-generated animation. The road to that goal, however, was a winding one. I mentioned in a prior episode the company started, in 1979, as a division of Lucasfilm. That's not entirely true. In 1974, what would become Pixar began as a sort of think tank on the American East Coast. A tiny band of passionate computer scientists from the New York Institute of Technology came together as the Computer Graphics Lab. Over the course of several years, those early pioneers developed many of the bedrock techniques still in use in CGI today. There was only one problem. The whole venture was doomed. At least at that time, computers were not powerful enough to keep up with the group's ambitions. Which brings me to a concept many of you may have heard of. Moore's Law, named after Intel co-founder Gordon Moore, states that the number of transistors on a dense integrated circuit doubles about every two years. Basically, it's an observation about a historical trend. All it's saying is, computers do and will get more powerful over time. This progression in technology both hindered the growth of Pixar and made its eventual successes possible. To put it more simply, for decades, the eyes of the scientists were bigger than their stomachs. After sinking about $15 million into the computer graphics lab and nearly bankrupting the New York Institute of Technology, founder Alexander Schur was at the limits of what he could do. That's when... Again in 79, most of Shear’s brain trust jumped ship for the West Coast, more specifically the graphics group at Lucasfilm. In 1983, the scientists were augmented by their first artist, former Disney animator John Lasseter. Not too long after, a piece of hardware that came out of the group, a machine for image compositing, was named the Picture Maker. This morphed into Pixar, which morphed into Pixar. During their run at Lucasfilm, the group created, under Lasseter's direction, several proof-of-concept short films, as well as CGI sequences for the movies Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Young Sherlock Holmes. But Moore's Law continued to dog the group. Their work wasn't getting good enough, fast enough. More importantly, it wasn't progressing in a cost-effective manner. The group decided their best way forward was to reorganize as a hardware company and sell imaging computers, dubbed Pixar Computers, to government agencies as well as scientific and medical firms. The only problem was no one wanted to take them over from George Lucas. No one, that is, until Apple co-founder Steve Jobs entered the picture. One thing the histories are often vague on is the fact that Jobs bought and maintained Pixar as a hardware company. His goal was to sell computers, and he more or less tolerated Lasseter's experiments with animation as a marketing tool for the machines although it did help that Lasseter and a small group of artists within the company began generating income by animating television commercials. Jobs' blind spot with regards to Pixar's destiny continued until very late in the game. In fact, he was considering selling the company as late as 1995, when several New York film critics persuaded him the company's first feature, Toy Story, was about to become a huge hit. But we're getting ahead of ourselves slightly. Throughout the late 80s and early 90s, Pixar was forced to wrestle with Moore's Law, grinding its gears and biding its time. During that period, the company collaborated with Nolan Bushnell, the founder of both Atari and Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater. They also created a digital ink and paint system for the Walt Disney Company. This technology, called the Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS for short, allowed Disney to color its 2D animation via computer rather than through traditional hand painting. The Little Mermaid was the last movie to use the old-school method. The Pixar image computer never sold well, but the company did finally make arrangements to fulfill its original purpose, the one that had brought together its founding members two decades prior. Pixar made a deal with Disney to produce three fully CGI films. As you probably already know, those New York film critics were right. Toy Story was a huge hit. Steve Jobs was won over to the cause of CGI animation. From that point forward, he dedicated himself to making Pixar as successful as it could be. He did this beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Not only were Pixar's movies profitable, but according to Wikipedia, all of them to date have debuted with a cinema score of A- or better. That's a startling track record of quality. To finish up for today, I'll remind you that Pixar was acquired by Disney for $7.4 billion in 2006. This made it one of those four pillars I mentioned earlier. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Once again, I'm Paul Newhouse. I want to thank you for listening. I'd like it if you'd tell your friends or maybe leave us a review on iTunes. And I want you to have a good week. Bye-bye.